This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch.
Kia ora theatre nerds, you are backstage with Mel and Mike. If you are new here, we talk about theatre. If you're not new here, it's because you're here for the nerding out too. <laughs> we know who you are. One more time, we come to you via Zoom, thanks to COVID-19 and Alert Level 4. But we are excited, very happy and delighted to report that next week's episode will come to you from the comfort of our studio and top-notch audio quality across the board. So bear with us today with all the glitches and things that may happen and join us properly again next week. We promise things will be better. Mike promises, so we've got to hold him to that, guys. <laughs> Yay for level two. It looks a little bit different this time around. A whole lot of masks wearing in public spaces mostly, so we're doing that. Uh, and we're signing in everywhere we go so that we can start rehearsals again and get back to the theatre. Hey, the thing that we love. There are many, many productions and venues breathing a huge sigh of relief that rehearsals can start up again. And I know that Mamma Mia was very close to the cutoff point in terms of having lost too much rehearsal time. But luckily for Hamilton Musical Theatre, they're able to get back in the rehearsal space on Thursday night this week. And they will be uh, going at it hammer and tongs to make sure they can open as scheduled in October. All things uh, being equal, that should happen. Of course, they're not the only ones. A lot of people around the region had uh, difficulties wondering how they were going to be able to manage this. Would they be able to open when they wanted to? What, what concessions would they have to make in terms of space and distancing and that sort of stuff? It's a really difficult uh, area to navigate. But I think overall, Mel, the feeling I'm getting from people that I'm talking to is that we've got to go for it as if we are getting the green light. You know, we can't hold back. You've got to you've got to step forward with positivity and make it happen. Yeah, there's a bit of a can-do spirit that we are sort of uh, seeing, well, I'm sort of feeling like I'm seeing and, and experiencing and the people around me. Let's just get on. Let's try and do it. If COVID's going to cancel us, then COVID's, COVID's going to cancel us. But let's try and do our best to forge ahead for now. And that's all you can do, really, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we've got to do is hope for the best. Yep, totally. Uh, so crossing our fingers that Alert Level 1 isn't too far around the corner, but pending another outbreak, uh, Mamma Mia is looking like it's going ahead. Back to the 80s is looking like it's going ahead. A bunch of the boiler projects are probably going ahead. So it's all fingers crossed material. Nothing can stop people when they need to get on stage, I reckon. But since we're on the subject already, let's get your calendars out for a quick list of what's coming up around the place soon, as far as we understand it as we speak. At the Meteor, we've got actually quite a lot coming up. Um, uh, so I like I mentioned the Boil Up Projects. Wish I was there, written and performed by James Smith. That's from the 15th to the 18th of September. Junior, written and directed by Connor Maxwell from the 22nd until the 26th. Another Boil Up Project. Oh no, we're moving down to Cashew by Linda Chanway Earl uh, is happening. That's rescheduled to October the 18th. Another Boil Up Project, Atameda, written and performed by Hinerangi Maria Berryman. That's on from the 20th to the 22nd of October. Drag Up Your Life uh, is presented by Miss California. That's October 23rd. And Assassins is rescheduled to be presented by Bold Theatre from December the 10th to the 18th. Whoop, whoop. Claret Street Theatre will have Friends the Musical Parody one night only October the 1st. This is a, one of those casualties from last year that now has become a casualty second time around. Hopefully we'll We'll get to see that show as scheduled for October the 1st. Tumeka Tui is presented by Tour Makers. That's on the 8th and the 9th of October. Over at Rivoli Theatre, as we've mentioned, Mamma Mia, presented by HMT. That's going to stage the 10th to the 31st of October. And Back to the 80s is directed by Glenn Matthews. That opens at the end of November. I've yet to touch base with Ivan, but uh, Navarra Lounge has uh, learned to paint uh, Mount Taranaki, presented by Painted. That's scheduled for Monday, September the 13th. Fingers crossed that that could still happen. Dark Waves presented by 12XU on Friday the 17th and Let the Night In. Kendall Elise's album released to us uh, scheduled for September the 18th. In Morrinsville, they are still and probably back in rehearsal for All Together Now. That's the MTI concert event. Still planning to go to stage uh, from November 12th to the 15th. Taroha and Little Theatre have had to postpone Death and Taxes by April Phillips. I don't have a new start date for that yet, but we should get that next week for you. Gaslight Theatre are in rehearsal still for Aladdin, a pantomime still going to stage in November that we know of. Maramara Musical Theatre are rehearsing a funny thing happened on the way to the Forum. They're still scheduled to hit the stage in November. Tokoroa Little Theatre are back in rehearsal for No Regrets, the musical written and directed by Sonia Winikiri. That's on stage in November as well. Tararu Theatre Plaza, I believe, are still rehearsing their Christmas or getting ready to start rehearsals for their Christmas production of Moonshine. That's on stage in November. 
and in Thames, I want to add, uh, Thames Music and Drama have their rehearsals for All Together Now on uh, at the moment too. They're also staging that in November. And then over in Tauranga, uh, TMT, Tauranga Musical Theatre, are in rehearsals for their version of All Together Now on stage in November. Uh, the 16th Ave Theatre are in rehearsal for The Revlon Girl, that's directed by Geraldine Broderick, on stage in October. Uh, again, we don't know if that's been postponed or not. Uh, and the Detour Theatre over in Tauranga have rescheduled their production of Sherlock Holmes' The Adventure of the Speckled Band. That now goes to stage uh, eight, the 18th of November to the 4th of December. Auckland Theatre Company, The Hucker Party Incident by Katie Wolfe is backed by popular demand on stage October the 2nd to the 10th and Blythe Spirit by Noel Coward November the 9th to the 28th. Now that we have been all pretty much given the go-ahead for everything, uh, uh, upcoming auditions and opportunities, take us away, Mike. All right, 16th Avenue Theatre in Tauranga are auditioning for Swingers. The April Phillips play, the auditions will be happening September the 19th. Follow them on Facebook for more information about how they're doing that. Auditions for Hamilton Musical Theatre's Summer Broadway Junior season of Beauty and the Beast Junior have been rescheduled to September the 22nd through the, to the 25th. Uh, check out HMT's Facebook page for information on how to book your audition. Maramata Dramatic Society uh, postponed their auditions for their upcoming season of At the Sign of the Crippled Harlequin by Norman Robbins. Uh, follow them on Facebook for their rescheduled dates. They will be happening, just they've moved it. There have been a few casualties thanks to COVID, but it's very, very exciting. And I think Mike will agree that our community is pretty much ready and willing to bounce right back into things. If there's a cancellation that you want us to spread the word about or something that is definitely going ahead that you want us to highlight, give us an email on backstagepodcastnz at gmail.com or let us know when you see us next, which will be very soon because level two. Yeah. You look frazzled, peaked as any alp, flushed and rushed and razzle-dazzled. Dry your lips, damp your scalp. Now I can see you're in a rut in disarray, and I'm not I must say, if you take it easy, trust a while, don't look blue, don't look back, you'll pull through in just a while, cause you're Keep those hopes aloft Keep cool as custard Trying hard, stepping soft There's no trick to staying sensible Despite each cul-de-sac Cause each step's indispensable When you're on the right track On the right track
track from our musical of the week which this week is Pippin. You are backstage with Mel and Mike and we are listening to the 2013 Broadway cast recording of that show. Mike, how do you feel about Swears on stage? Oh, heck. Oh, this is this is a tough one, isn't it? Because you know, changing attitudes uh, mean that people's tolerance for some things change, but there are also circumstances in which and you know, some words are just not good at any time. Um, other things with the right context you can accept that that's part of what's happening uh, it's a moving yep. feast I, I'm going to sit entirely on the fence on this because I've, I've been in shows where I've had to use language that I personally may not necessarily want to use but being involved in the character involved in the context of the story and what's happening on stage at that time I say yeah let's do it you know yeah <laughs> sorry to slip that one in there you know i think it's a horses for courses thing you've got to judge it carefully with every production and say is this appropriate if the author's written it there's got to be a reason for it that's usually you know where you start from isn't it yeah i'm inclined to agree uh, you know i'm not a prude at all when it comes to especially not swearing and if you know me you know this um but i feel quite <laughs> passionately about matching subject matter with the language of the play with the language of the characters and with the audience it's tended for you know and like you've said in short i think there are better times for it than others case by case basis for me i personally feel you can't guard against somebody being offended all the time though can you i mean so in any given audience there will be people who who feel uncomfortable with some language Oh, that, and what offends one person isn't going to offend the next person. It's so subjective, you know. And I think that that's the nub of the problem, isn't it? Because if it is a subjective thing, how do you come up with a method of dealing with that when you're uh, whether in, in the position of wanting to mount a production? Where do you draw the line? Uh, obviously, in terms of um, what's appropriate for adults and what's appropriate for kids, that's not too much of a, a difficult one to deal with. But when you're dealing with something that may be highly emotional, very gritty, very real, very dark, maybe looking at some of the more unpleasant sides of human nature or things that may have historically happened that require some realism like that, you've got to, you've got to work out for yourself how you're going to handle that. Yeah, well, and we'll discuss, I guess we'll discuss this as the next few minutes passes, but you've sort of hit the nail on the head there with calling it realism. You know, I think writers as a general rule, are trying to emulate the way people actually speak. And often that comes with swears. Mm, it does. Now, if you're wondering why we're talking about this now, it comes after a short discussion last week around bleeping the curse word in last week's episode of the show when Mel was talking about uh, the play titled The Mother with the Hat. And for the radio broadcast, obviously, we, we had to bleep that. But for the podcast... You know what you're getting when you download a podcast, usually, and and you make that selection to do that. With radio, people can accidentally listen, so that's why we had to follow the uh, guidelines of the Broadcasting Standards Authority to do that. But it brought up for Mel and I the subject of language on stage and, and sort of what's appropriate, when is it appropriate, where do you feel like you need to be some kind of a censor? And it's, um, there is no clear answer, really, I suppose you must say. No, I don't think there is. And so naturally this discussion led me down a rabbit hole. Uh, what are the general rules of cursing on stage? Are there any? Um, how much is too much? All of that. And of course I came across some contentious show titles and shows um, which I thought I would chuck in a little bit as well. All right. But it's quite a big issue of debate. Isn't it? It's huge. For starters, we aren't the only people who've ever discussed whether or not to censor the title of that very play that we mentioned before. Producers on both Broadway and West End stages were uh, plagued with the same dilemma. Like, you know, how do you promote a show with a name like that? On the West End, they exactly. put an asterisk in place of the U and all the print advertising. But 
you know, you know what the word is, and only use the uncensored mm-hmm. title in the play program itself because you know the audience is there, they're buying into it, they're coming to see a show that they know what it's what the title is, they know what it's about. But for public display, and it's a bit like the difference between me talking about radio broadcasting and podcasting. If you're listening to the radio, you don't know what's going to come up next. If you download a podcast and select to listen to that podcast, you take what comes. And I see the same yeah. uh, parallel with what they did with that play in that particular instance. Yeah, that's right. And there's another play around, produced around the same time, I think, actually, um, called Fuck the Polar Bears. And that played on the West End. The producers there chose to omit both the U and the C, thank you very much, uh, in both the print advertising and the program. You know, they're being extra careful. <laughs> and for the most part, <laughs> for the most part, I think you'd expect on this topic, theatre communities worldwide are pretty much split on the subject, actually, specifically in the case mm-hmm. of the plays that we've just been talking about. There is an argument to be made that the play's title ferrets out its intended audience by blatantly saying, well, this is a show that has swearing in its title. If you come and see it, you'll know that right that's that's what i am inclined to think you know if you don't like swearing you're not going to go and see a play called the mother effer with the hat you know you, you're just going to stay away from that but um which... you, you can't go putting a poster up outside the supermarket for the show though can you if it's got that <laughs> on the <top. laughs> no you can't no you can't and i think that was part of their problem there's actually a, a good article on the guardian about um marketing that play on the west end and its challenges which are which is sort of where this whole rabbit hole started and i guess to get back on track there is censorship almost across every entertainment industry True. so it's not a surprise that, that there would be concerns around content that isn't uh, suitable for public dissemination which is where the discussion sits really controversy is not only exciting but it generates discourse uh, if a subject isn't talked about enough or if it's been talked about perhaps in the wrong way one of the few things that can genuinely fix that problem actually is controversy and i guess you've got to also go back to the old adage that uh, any publicity is good publicity so if people are uh, upset and up in arms about the language in the production you can guarantee it's going to sell that's the thing, isn't it? I, I I hear a play with the... T- in fact, that really a good example is me even selecting that play to talk about the mother with the hat. I saw that title stick out almost as if it was a neon writing. It jumped off the page <laughs> at me. And amongst, you know, plays like Amadeus and, you know, all sorts of other Tony Award-winning plays. And I chose the mother with the hat because I liked to swear. <laughs> but I gather you're not all that comfortable with having the debate about this, really. Oh, yeah, I'm not. It's just a very contentious subject. You know, you either you're either for or you're against. You don't find too many people that sit in the middle. And so, you know, having these debates and these discussions are obviously quite fierce. And I that's that's where your comfort is tested. Yeah, that's not, (laughs) not, not the fact that you're talking about the language, but the fact that you're having the debate. That's right. But, the, you know, times change. I said that from the outset. You know, the, there's not that long ago you couldn't say the word shit on stage um, without totally. offending someone. Now it gets used even in public broadcasting. And I think as we change as a community and as a society, we accept some things more readily than perhaps our parents might have. And that's always going to yeah. be that way, I think. There is content that I would listen to and find absolutely no issue with that my grandma would be absolutely offended by. Mm. You know, times change. And well, language evolves. It is easy to to categorise people, though, and I will relate a story uh, of uh, one of my elderly neighbours who wanted to come and see one of the recent shows I was in, um, which was Catch Me If You Can. And in that show, I think there was only one F-bomb, and I was the lucky person that got to deliver it. And I said to her at the time that she said she would love to come and see it, I said, she was a woman approaching 90, and I said, I've got to warn you, though, there is a little bit of bad language in it. And she, <laughs> she floored me by firing one back at me and saying, oh, you know, I, won't, I won't give a word-for-word word word response, but she was saying, like, for F's sake, you think I haven't heard that sort of stuff before? <laughs> and it brought me back to earth rather neatly, actually, because I thought, well, yeah, you know, people are much more broad-minded than sometimes we give them credit for as well. And she could see that happening yeah, in context, and she accepted it. It was okay. Yeah, I like that. That's a really good example, actually. And something, our friend Julia Watkins has said this to me. You know, I remember being shocked the first time I ever heard her swear. And she said, what do you think, Mel? 
do you think I'm just an old lady? <laughs> and you know, I'm not doing a very good Julia impression, but um, she, you know, really hit it home. What, I mean, I haven't, so I haven't changed from when I was a teenager to now. Mm. I just don't show that part of myself to everybody. And another fact is, you know, that um, as I said, as society's expectations and tolerance evolve, so does language. Its uh, use is also very subjective. So what is offensive to one person isn't necessarily going to offend the, offend the next person. And also that's something that could change in the future too. Exactly. And theatre stands or falls on whether or not its vocalised language has power. So, And I say vocalised language because sung or spoken, the words of the play must move us if it's to, to succeed and move us in whatever way that, that might be. True. Um, making it, un, again, unsurprising that playwrights frequently use profane, quote-unquote profane language in their work. Such words like, you know, swears are... Uh, we think they, ma- or playwrights think they make an impact, and, and they do. And they do, they do. Which is why the use of cursing on stage is nothing new, but in the past couple of years there has seemed to be more and more mouthing off on stage. And we talked about the motherfucker with the hat last week, just as a title, but if I think about the production uh, we're involved in now with Assassins, there is quite a lot of language within that, within the context of the songs that we sing and some of the dialogue, uh, which, you know, Stephen sometimes was quite uh, determined that he wanted to make people pay attention to the messages he had so he chose the most profane way of doing that in some instances. Mm, interesting. I like that it's not just plays. No. In the same Broadway season that um, Mother with the Hat went to stage, uh, Martin McDonough, who wrote Pillow Men or The Pillow Man, uh, he wrote a recent play called Hangman. Apparently that was a lesson in how to curse artfully. And Jesse Green, a New York Times theatre critic called Stephen Adley Gerges, and he wrote The Mother with the Hat. Uh, Jesus hopped on the A train and obscenity oratoria. <laughs> There's also Jerry Springer, the opera. Don't forget about that in which God, mm. God himself sprays a few expletives of his own. And even less recently, plays like Punk Rock by Simon Stevens or Closer by Patrick Marber. And like I've said, I'm thankful it's not just plays. You hear plenty of swears in uh, musicals, including today's musical of the week, Pippin, uh, Spring Awakening, Jersey Boys, Billy Elliot, Hamilton. Yeah, so we're not complete prudes. We're just a bit prudish sometimes. When there's an expletive in the title of the show, perhaps, maybe that's when it stands out more because you can't really get away from it, maybe? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Eh? In short, yes, but in long. So there's a good um, quote, Benjamin Bergen, he's a professor of cognitive science at the University of California, San Diego. He said in an interview, um, your heart rate increases, your pupils dilate, you start sweating. Uh, and this is called a state of emotional arousal. Mm. Hearing the most taboo language induces this effect much more strongly than other powerful positive or negative words. Stephen Adley-Gurgis says he uses curse words to depict reality, which is probably true for a bulk of the playwrights who decide to use colloquial or profane language. Profanity does sometimes help uh, create a sense of authenticity. It can also be employed to punch up everyday speech to make it a bit more sort of impactful. A sentence or phrase that might otherwise be flat can become, as if by magic, quite hilarious or heartbreaking or even beautiful sometimes. I know that sounds like an oxymoron. Uh, when a curse word is inserted into it, uh, just it can change the complexity and the ability of a, of a sentence or a phrase to reach areas that it couldn't otherwise. I mean, they, they were invented for a purpose, weren't they? Yeah. The musicality of bad language is taken to another level in Jerry Springer, the opera. Um, you've got two languages happening at the same time. You've got the language of, of words and the language of music. And apparently it's the contrast between the expletives and the opera singers that really makes it work, according to its main creator, uh, Richard Thomas. Strong language can backfire, though, with critics and audiences sometimes reacting quite differently than the playwright intended. David Barr Katz said he felt some audience members weren't able to recover from the obscenities used in the opening scene of his 2011 production, The Atmosphere of Memory. He said a lot of the audience never came back from that scene. It was supposed to be comedic, but it's incredibly profane. They don't know what to do with it. If you're trying to elicit a certain reaction and if profanity is not serving you, then you, as a disciplined artist, have to find another way. 
I like that. Uh, it's good to realize, make those realizations as well. It's good for him to know that as a writer. Some playwrights contend that they're particularly vulnerable to criticism for their use of profanity. Um, I read about Hayley Pfeiffer, who has had several prominent off-Broadway productions. Uh, she said that she thinks female playwrights are more likely to be taken to task for the practice of swearing or putting swearing in their scripts Gosh, than, that's, that's terrible, than a male playwright. Yeah. That's what she, I mean, I guess it's a bit speculative, but she said, I feel pretty strongly that female playwrights are basically lauded when we write plays that fall into the category of feminine, plays that are more flowery in their language or use pretty metaphors or kooky imagery. When we write more in the muscular, high octane and, yes, profane vein of playwrights who are considered masculine, mammoth, McDonough, Stephen Adley, Gurgis, we're sort of slapped on the wrist. Mm, uh, so people, I mean, i I don't know if I think that's true necessarily in New Zealand, but it might be um, in, Amer- in the American industry. And like we've mentioned, dialogue is one thing, but as Mr. Gurgis' show demonstrated, um, printable titles bring their own extra challenge as publications have standards that won't allow for their use. With a curse word in the title, getting a word out about the play itself can be difficult. Like I said, the poster at the supermarket ain't going to fly. <laughs> no, it's not going to fly. In terms of official rules, there don't really appear to be many. Instead, I think people choose to leave it up to the artist and the production and the venue to sort of police it themselves. You know, one thing I haven't seen for ages is actually, uh, you know, an advisory on a poster or on a program or something that says some uh, language in this production may offend. It used to be a thing that you saw quite frequently. You see it less often these days. And I wonder if, the, well, I, I'm guessing that that is really just indicative of the way that society's acceptance of certain languages changed. Anyway, as a sort of a summary, cursing in the theatre and on stage has been happening actually as far back as Shakespeare, probably before then. Shakespeare's use of offensive language was a means to skirt the senses at work in his day. Both Shakespeare and authors like David Mamet used profanity and offensive language to declare the social and economic status as well as the educational level of the characters. So it's not just about how they speak, it's about painting a picture of the people on the play. And some of the language that they use was actually really colourful for that very reason. Like Very yeah. um, uniquely descriptive in the way that they decided to use words to actually deliver some pretty nasty comments. Yeah, that's right. As well as the fact that changes in characters and differences between characters are also developed by the use of their obscene, or quote-unquote obscene language. So, I mean, write and produce your foul language plays all you like, uh, awesome, great power to the people, but be, do be aware that they come with the shares of marketing and accessibility challenges in terms of getting it to the right audience. That's true, that, and I guess you could say they come with some responsibilities in that regard. So that said, mm. if you can do it well, and you do, you're kind of a legend in our book, so there's always good reason <laughs> for throwing something to see if it will stick. Talking till dawn Candles and confidences Trading old beliefs and humming old songs And lowering old defenses Singing a love song La 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 Love song La 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 Private little joke and silly pet names Lavender soap and lotions All of the cliches and all of the games And all of the strange emotions Singing a love song La 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 Love song It's made of Well if it's true Of anything It's true of love Cause how can you Define a look Or a touch How can you weigh A feeling Taken by themselves Now they don't mean much Together They send you reeling Into a Oh, 
you're backstage with me, Mel, and my good friend Mike. We're nerding out over theatre as always, and today we have been talking about swear words on stage. But now it's time for Mel to tell us everything she knows about Pippin, and I'm betting it will be a lot, so I'm just going to sit back and uh, do what I do, buckle in, folks. Yeah, let's buckle in. Um, it is an, a bit of an interesting little journey. Pippin is a 1972 musical with music and lyrics by Stephen Schwartz and a book by Roger O'Hurston. Bob Fosse, who directed the original Broadway production, also contributed to the libretto. The show begins with the leading player of a troupe and the accompanying players inviting the audience to witness their show, Breaking the Fourth Wall. They begin telling the story of Pippin, who they say has been played by a new actor, the first son of Charlemagne. Pippin has just returned home from uh, university and wants to find meaning in his life. Guided by the leading player, Pippin tries his hand at war, fighting alongside uh, step- his stepbrothers, Charles and Louis. Pippin then asks Bertha, his grandmother, for advice, and she suggests sexual experimentation. Meanwhile, for Strata, Pippin's conniving stepmother, concocts a plan to get her son, Louis, closer to the throne than Pippin. Pippin falls into her trap, killing Charles and attempting to rule the empire. The leading player resuscitates Charles when Pippin asks, and Pippin continues searching for meaning in his life. Finally, he meets a woman named Catherine, who has a young son, Theo. Pippin uneasily settles into family life with Catherine, although he is in love with her. Pippin eventually leaves Catherine and returns to the leading player. Finally, the leading player and the players attempt to convince Pippin to go up in flame as a final statement about his life. Stephen Schwartz originally intended the show to end with Pippin happily marrying Catherine. However, the more cynical Bob Fosse wanted Pippin to commit suicide. So during revisions backwards and forwards as as Fosse deepened the role of the leading player, Fosse and Schwartz eventually settled somewhat on the ending as it was originally performed. All alone on a stage, Pippin is surrounded by the leading player and the various players. They tell him that the only fulfilling thing is their one perfect act, the finale, in which Pippin will light himself on fire and become one with the flame, implying that he will die in the process. Just when he is about to do it, he realises that there has to be something other than death, and he chooses not to follow through. Catherine and her son Theo enter, defying the script to stand beside Pippin. The leading player becomes furious. He calls off the show, telling the rest of the players in the orchestra to pack up and leave Pippin, Catherine and her son alone on the empty stage. Pippin realises that he has given up his extraordinary purpose for the simplest and most ordinary life of all. When Catherine asks him at the end of the show how he feels, he says, trapped, which isn't too bad for the end of a musical comedy. (laughs) Ta-da! Gosh, it really Uh, sounds like some sort of um, traditional Greek tragedy or something, doesn't it, with all the the players on stage and all that sort of stuff? I think it definitely is intended to be. Um, Some newer productions of Pippin, including the 2013 Broadway revival that we're listening to today, featured an extension to the original ending. So the Theo ending was originally conceived in 1998 by Mitch Sebastian, and it goes, after the players shun Pippin for not performing the grand finale and he averts his his contentment with a simple life with Catherine. Theo remains alone on stage and sings a verse of Corner of the Sky, which is the big song um, about finding your purpose in the world that um, Pippin sings at the beginning of the show. After which the leading player and the players return. They're backed by the show's opening melody, thus implying that the existential crisis at the heart of the play is a part of the cycle that now continues, but with Theo uh, as the player's replacement for Pippin. And on the story goes. Current productions vary between the two possible endings, though uh, Stephen Schwartz himself has expressed his preference for the newer ending with, you know, the cycle. Yeah. Pippin premiered at the Imperial Theatre uh, on Broadway in October 1972 and ran for 1,944 performances before closing in June of 1977. That was directed and choreographed by Bob Fosse. Clive Barnes commented for the New York Times, uh, it is a commonplace set to rock music and I must say I found most of the music somewhat characterless. It is nevertheless consistently tuneful and contains a few rock ballads that could prove memorable. 
commercial. Advertising for the Broadway production broke new ground with the first TV commercial that actually showed scenes from a Broadway show on TV. The 60-second commercial showed Ben Vereen, the original leading player, Mm -hmm. uh, and two chorus dancers, Candy Brown and Pamela Sousa, in the instrumental dance sequence from Glory. The commercial ended with the tagline, you can see the other 119 minutes of Pippin Live at the Imperial Theatre without commercial interruption. (laughs) So that was a bit of a milestone in Broadway history. Musical theatre scholar Scott Miller said in his 1996 book, From Assassins to West Side Story, Pippin is a largely underappreciated musical with a great deal more substance to it than many people realise. Because of its 1970s pop-style score and a somewhat emasculated licensed version for amateur productions, which is very different from the original Broadway production. The show now has a reputation for being merely cute and harmlessly naughty. But if done the way the director Bob Fosse envisaged it, the show is surreal and disturbing, which I believe, I believe that. It sounds a little disturbing. The show opened in the West End at Her Majesty's Theatre in October of 1973. That ran for 85 performances and Bob Fosse directed and choreographed that once again. Then in 2013, a new production was developed for the American Repertory Theatre in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That production was directed by Diane Paulus, who uh, most notably uh, reinvented the show, integrating uh, essentially magic illusions, circus acts. Uh, And that cast was led by Matthew James Thomas as Pippin, Patina Miller as the leading player, Andrea Martin as Bertha, and Rachel Bay Jones as Catherine. So Patina Miller um, is female, and she was quite nervous to take on the role of the leading player, recreating a character uh, by a highly acclaimed male actor. However, apparently the challenge presented by such a role and the representational power of the genderblind casting outweighed her apprehension. She said that, I know there are people who wonder why the leading player has to be a woman this time, but one of the great things about revivals is to be able to do things in a new and exciting way. Gosh, it sounds like uh, Diane Paulus's take on the thing was much more in keeping with the Bob Fosse kind of style of surreal and, you know, you incorporating magic and illusion in what she was doing that uh, seems truer to the original intent. I think the circus setting really suits the story. I'm surprised to hear that people think it's... Yeah, anyway. Uh, so that uh, production from the American Repertory Theatre, that transferred to Broadway, beginning with previews on Mar- in March of 2013 at the Music Box Theatre. It was followed by an opening in April that same year. Diane Paulus, again directed with circus choreography and acrobatics by Chet Walker and Gypsy Snyder. This revival won four categories at the 67th Tony Awards, out of 10 nominations, uh, it won Best Revival, Best Leading Actress, Best Featured Actress, and Best Direction. And the Broadway revival closed on January 4th of 2015, so it ran for a couple of years. The original Australian production, a replica of the Broadway production, opened in February of 74 at Her Majesty's Theatre in Melbourne. Uh, That's how John Farnham as Pippin and transferred to Her Majesty's Theatre in Sydney in August of 74. That cast album was released uh, and it reached 60th on the Australian charts. And following an eight-month suspension of theatrical performances due to the global coronavirus pandemic, Pippin was the first major musical to open in Australia again. Previews for that began last year in November with an official opening on 3rd of December and a planned closing on the 31st of January this year, but I'm actually not sure whether or not that went ahead. So basically, Pippin is a bit of a favourite around the world and has continuously had a season running somewhere in the world since its premiere in the 70s. Wow. Oh, that's so yeah. cool. Yeah. Isn't, isn't that interesting? It is, and I, I love the sound of it. I, I'm not familiar with it, never seen it. I've obviously been aware of it for a long time, and I knew about Ben Vereen's um, reputation as the player in the original production. I like the sound of what Bob Fosse did with it. I like the sound of what Diane Paulus did with it. And if you're going to yeah. see a production in the 2020s, I think it would have to be that more gritty, surreal darker kind of take on the whole story uh, rather than something frothy and, and cute. So if, if, it, if it surfaces yeah, again, if anybody it, decides to do it on, on stage in New Zealand, I'd like to see them do that version. Yeah, me too. And that, I guess, is another episode done and dusted. Thank you, Mel, for bringing us some music. Oh, gosh. Yeah. 
Thank you to Free FM for hosting us. Thanks, Creative Waikato, for sponsoring us. And thank you for joining us in our lockdown. It's been a treat. And uh, next week, as we promised, Mel and I will be in the studio uh, sharing bonhomie and maybe a chocolate. Bonhomie. <laughs> face Yay. to face and doing it, doing it uh, in the studio again next week will be a real treat for us. But nothing can keep us down for now. So we will see you in seven days. Yeah, you will. Don't forget to catch Backstage wherever you get your podcasts. Backstage is available on accessmedia.nz, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, basically everywhere. Uh, And head over to Instagram and find Backstage Podcast NZ, where I will be sharing today's episode plus Musical of the Week on our story. I, once again, have been Mel. He's been Mike, and you've been Backstage. Stay classy, theatre nerds. And we're going to bow out gracefully today with our finale track from our Musical of the Week, Pippin. See ya. to the sea And if I'm never tied to anything I'll never be free
I wanted magic shows and miracles, mirages to touch. I wanted such a little thing from life. I wanted so much. I never came close, my love. We nearly came near. It never was there. I think it was here. They showed me crimson, gold, and lavender. A shining parade, but there's no color I can have on earth that won't finally fade. When I wanted worlds to paint and costumes to wear, it always was here. It never was there. My spirit can run free. Gotta find my corner of the sky. Episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.